from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. The Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of people who have been influenced by the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Michael Lindsay. Mike ran into the Baha'i faith when he and his best friend from high school were seekers of spiritual truth. This search led Mike to investigating Sufism and then ultimately the Baha'i faith. I started the interview by asking Mike where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in Tennessee, in Chattanooga, at least the first seven years of my life. But it was a bit unusual. I was raised by my grandmother. My mother was 16 years old when she gave birth to me. She had eloped with my birth father, who was also uh, Cherokee. Your mother was Cherokee? My, well, my mother is uh, English and Cherokee, and my birth father was German and Cherokee. Okay. Anyway, uh, my grandmother tracked my mother down in Texas, where it was legal her to get married at that age. She brought her back to Tennessee and had the marriage annulled, but I had been conceived already. (laughs) So my mother was needing to finish school, finish uh, high school and uh, working and so forth. So she was around, but for part of the time anyway. And then uh, later on, she she went to Washington, D.C. because she was able to get a job there. There were government jobs. So my grandmother and then another aunt took the responsibility of raising me. So uh, we lived in uh, a very strange place, which doesn't exist anymore. It was a mountain. Uh, We lived on a very wooded, beautiful mountain, which since has been actually uh, destroyed, completely the top of it totally cut off for a highway. But uh, anyway, at that time, it was a very uh, beautiful place, and so I had this whole mountain to play on and run, and and uh, there were animals. There was a, a wild dog that I remember when I was about three or four. My family can't agree if it was a wolf or a wild dog, but it was definitely a wild animal. Anyway, I I tamed it. At least I could go around it and pet it and everything. None of the adults could come near it. And it stayed in my Roy Rogers pup tent. So anyway, that was the kind of life I had growing up. My, uh, My uncle, who's more like a big brother to me, he's 12 years older than me, he built me a, a beautiful treehouse high up in a tree, and I roamed on this mountain and, and communed with nature, and it was uh, remarkable. So up to seven years old, you were 
living in Chattanooga near this mountain that you spend a lot of time in? Yeah. Uh, actually, we only lived there, I think, until I was about six or maybe five. Because then I remember when I went to school, we had moved uh, in town. Maybe that was when they were going to tear the mountain down. I'm not sure. So I went to Catholic school in kindergarten and first grade, and not because we were Catholic, but because my grandmother knew the school system there was not very good, and we lived right across the street from a Catholic school. And so she took me and dressed me up, and we went, and I remember going meeting with the Mother Superior, and somehow she convinced the Mother Superior to let me enroll there. And at that time, the Catholics got free education, parochial education, but since I wasn't Catholic, she told my grandmother we'd have to pay $50 a month, which my grandmother quickly agreed to, and that was uh, my schooling. What was it like? Actually, it was wonderful. I loved it. I just found learning very interesting and fascinating, and the uh, teacher I had for first grade was a sister, a nun, and I think, I don't know if it was her first year, but it was very near to her beginning of her career, and she was very kind and very uh, understanding and a very good teacher. And I liked uh, all the religious stuff, too. In fact, I got it a little mixed up, though, because the only subject the sister didn't teach was math, and they had what I called a civilian come in and teach that, an older lady, uh, and... She was not a very good teacher, and, and, and therefore I was a little crippled from the beginning in, in math, although later I taught myself. So I was trying to, to understand the concept from her, and, and so said, I said, you know, how do you know that 3 plus 4 is 7? Do I need to add it on my fingers every time? Do I need to, you know, how, how do I know that? Am I just supposed to know that or what? And she said, the following. She said, close your eyes and the answer will come to you. So I kind of got this all mixed up with the catechism. So while the other kids were there working on their tests and their quizzes and doing their problems, I was with my eyes closed waiting for a vision of the answer. How well did it work? Uh, It wasn't very good because I would like look and I'd say, is that a three or an eight? You know, I'd see these images in front of my eyes and I couldn't quite make them out very clearly. But I liked the whole spiritual aspect of it, and some of my friends invited me to uh, come to church with them, and I did that, and I, was, I loved the whole thing. I loved the mystery, and I loved just the, the, the ceremony of it and everything. It's really interesting, because if they had invited me, I probably would have joined their, the uh, Catholic faith, but no one ever invited me. I thought they were just wonderful people, and I thought that, you know, in fact, when some of my schoolmates would would say curse words or something like that, I would say to them, you know, you can't, you can't do that. You're Catholic. And they just looked at me like I was kind of crazy. So why were you only in Catholic school for two years? Well, at, after my first grade year, by this time my mom had uh, remarried uh, up there in Washington, D.C., where she was working for the Navy, Navy Department. They wanted me to come and live uh, with her and my, and my stepfather. So they tried to enroll me in Catholic school in Washington, but it was much harder to get in and so forth. So I uh, ended up going there and going to public school. 
and that was for second grade, like when I was seven years old. Then. And that was a, a real shock. Uh, we lived in southeast Washington, D.C., and, and even at that time, it was a racially mixed neighborhood, quite rough, so I had to learn how to fight just to protect myself. Everybody thought I talked funny because I had a very strong Tennessee twang, and I thought they talked funny, but when I told them that, then they would beat me up. (laughs) I think that was when I got good at mimicking voices, so I just would try to talk like them so they wouldn't, I wouldn't stand out and and then people wouldn't want to hit me. This was in the Washington, D.C. area? Yeah, this was in Washington, D.C., actually, in southeast Washington, D.C., 2nd Street. (laughs) You know, which uh, is, if you go there now, I mean, uh, it's a real uh, notorious neighborhood. The the school I went to was uh, Simon Elementary, and then down the Way from that was the middle school, and then up on the hill was Ballou Senior High School, which has been written up in the national media like one of the toughest high schools in the country. And they have the the prison concertina wire fences all around it and just a scary place. And even when I was there, this was like probably 61 or 62, I remember hearing, we'd hear rumors about every month that some kid from the middle school, which was about 100 yards down from our school, Someone had been caught, you know, bringing a gun to school or something like that. And, of course, you didn't hear about that in the media in 1961 or 62, but it was happening in our our neighborhood. How long did you grow up in the Washington, D.C. area? Well, we were there a couple of years, and then my dad, I think he got promoted or something in the government anyway. He moved us out into the, the country, what's now the suburbs, but then it was pretty much considered the country. We moved out into... Great Falls, Virginia, and then later on out to Sterling, Virginia. So kind of went back to the idyllic, and I was very relieved to also to do that because I didn't, I really didn't like the city very much at all, and, and felt pretty un, under constant threat. and And also, I, I I felt a great suffering of not being having the nature available, just the concrete and the the brick buildings and. Yeah, we moved out to uh, Great Falls, and we rented a place, and then later moved further out to Sterling, Virginia, and and, uh, my folks bought a house. uh, So that was kind of a suburb, and then later after that, we moved further out (laughs) in Sterling to a a place with three acres, and we had a horse, and our neighbors had quite a few horses and more, more acreage and so forth. So I enjoyed that very much, and my dad taught me, you know, hunting and fishing and all those kind of things that rural kids learn, shooting, all that stuff. And that's where you grew up and through high school? Through high school, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And then That's what ha- where I was living when I uh, encountered the, the Baha'i faith. Why don't you tell me how that happened? Well, in 10th grade in high school, we, we went to, like I said, you know, it was a rural area, so we went to a rural high school, and I met a fellow who had moved, I guess his dad was in the military. So in 10th grade, he hadn't been there before, but he had moved in in 10th grade. and Just an interesting fellow, had long, curly blonde hair, and we became real, really good friends. And he was sort of a seeker. So we became friends, and he was into you name it. He'd lived in different parts of the world and stuff like this, and so he was interested in different 
kinds of religions and, and so forth and so on. And So it was through him I, I sort of became awakened to sort of a spiritual quest. I had, I had been, as I said, as a younger child, very, I think, naturally spiritual. I, my family wasn't real religious. I went to church and so forth different times with different family members, but none of that ever really impressed me. Uh, I felt a presence, a spiritual presence, particularly in nature, and, and I felt that I had a relationship with God, and I prayed, and I talked to God, and God talked to me, and, you know, all that kind of stuff as, as a child. And then as I got older and everything, and I was, I was very interested in, in everything I could learn and got into science, and as I did, I sort of just put all that aside. I didn't reject it so much as I just said, well, that was, you know, for when I was a child. But then uh, after, you know, I met this friend in high school and stuff and became disillusioned with some of the things I had gotten into, such as politics and so forth, then uh, I think I became sort of a spiritual seeker again, and, and I remembered some of my roots, so to speak, of spiritual experience and spiritual awareness. This friend and I, in our senior year, at Christmas time, he disappeared and he ran away. And come to find out, after he came back, he had gone out west. He had gone to New Mexico. At that time, there was a book that had come out called Be Here Now by Baba Ram Das. His former name had been Richard Alpert, and he was at, at Harvard with, with Timothy Leary and these guys. And he had gone to India and, and found a guru and so forth, and he, he founded this Lama Foundation, and this was who put out this book. My friend was very profoundly affected by this book. He actually went out to uh, New Mexico. It was uh, out in Taos, New Mexico, and he, in the middle of winter, he climbed this mountain, you know, in four or five feet of snow and found this place miraculously. But it was kind of funny, actually, because he wanted to talk to all the people about the things he'd read in the book and so forth, but the people that were there at this Lama Foundation were in the process of doing an exercise of not talking, of silence, so nobody would talk to him, which I guess was very frustrating. And so finally, after a while, he decided that this wasn't what he was looking for, and he was getting ready to leave, and he remembered as he was coming up the mountain, he had encountered a group of people, and they said, if you don't find what you're looking for at the Lama Foundation, come to the other side of the mountain, come to a place called Goldmine. And they said, we have a teacher. So he remembered that, and he said, well, look, I've come this far, and I've left high school in the middle of my senior year, and so what have I got to lose? So he traipses through the snow, wandering around in the woods on this Taos Mountain. Finally, finds this little run-down kind of adobe pretty much a shack, and knocks on the door and come to find out these people are Sufis. What is a Sufi? <laughs> I love it when people ask that question. Sufis always have wiseacre answers to that question. One is, in the Persian dictionary, they say, Sufi, Sufist. And I apologize if any of your Persian-speaking listeners for my terrible pronunciation, but it means, what is a Sufi? A Sufi is a Sufi. <laughs> they like that kind of Zen koan type thing. 
I guess if you looked it up on Wikipedia, it would probably say something like an Islamic mystic, and some of them like to do the dancing, like you've heard of the whirling dervishes, mm-hmm. and some of them do other exercises, spiritual exercises, to achieve ecstasy and closeness to God, and so that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. He had a very profound experience with these folks, and then did return home. So he shared this whole story in detail with me of his experience, and it was very moving to me, and it opened up a part of myself and particularly my heart that hadn't been accessed in a very long time. And so then I became interested for the first time in in many years in spiritual things. So he started feeding me books, starting with this book I mentioned, Be Here Now, and then a lot of Alan Watts, and then some Gurdjieff, The Psychology of Man's Possible Evolution by P.D. Ospensky, who was a disciple of Gurdjieff, who was a Russian mystic who was heavily influenced by the Sufis. So that was in the spring of our senior year, and then we started kind of experimenting with some of these things that we were reading about, like self-observation, what they call self-remembering, which is a consequence of self-observation. We tried some things like not talking excessively, which was very hard for me to do. (laughs) And we got very interesting results and interesting reactions from our fellow classmates and so forth. On my birthday, May 15th, we decided that it was time, even though we were a month away from graduation, that we couldn't take it anymore, and it was time for us to leave. So we, again, headed out west. By this time, the Sufis had relocated to Boulder, Colorado. And so we went to Boulder, ended up having to hitchhike and do all these crazy things and had all these crazy adventures. Then by the time we got to Boulder, they had moved on. The teacher had moved on to San Francisco. So we went on to San Francisco and eventually met the Sufi teacher and sort of became immersed in this world of spiritual exercises, if you will, for self-awareness. For me, it was a very profound. It, was, it brought me back to that spirit I had known and felt as a young child. It made me believe that there was some truth in the world that gave it meaning, because I guess I had despaired of that. That was part of the reason I became a seeker. I I really felt that I had nothing to lose because I very quickly was, as I said, I'd been involved in politics and so forth. I had been picked to be the Democratic youth delegate to the Democratic Convention from our area for the 1972 Democratic Convention. And I had become disillusioned with that because when we got behind the closed doors, people were using... uh, racially disparaging terms and so forth, even though out in front of the public they all talked quality and so forth. So I'd become disillusioned with the politics and disillusioned with science and in the sense that science seemed to be used for so many destructive purposes, including the environment. I started to have some hope, though, meeting these Sufis and studying. And We came back, and that summer... This friend's brother, he was also, he had gone through a crisis of conscience. He had been away at college in the Chicago area, and he had started investigating different groups, Quakers and Buddhists and so forth, and he took me along with him. 
and I had also done some of that on my own too, going to hear different people speak and so forth. Ultimately, he had seen the Baha'i House of Worship in Chicago and said, you know, we should try one of their meetings. The first time he was going, I wasn't actually able to go with him. He came back and reported it was very interesting. His brother, the, the original fellow that I had gone out, out west with, so we went, and we kind of went as Sufis to, the, to our first Baha'i fireside. Now, Mike, a Baha'i fireside, what's that? It's kind of an informal discussion. In those days, the way they did it, they had a speaker, maybe for just a few minutes, maybe 20, 30 minutes, and then people could ask questions, and then they had, you had a chance to socialize and so forth, had some refreshments, and, and you could ask if you had any other questions you didn't want to ask in front of a big group. You could ask individual Baha'is and so forth. So we went to this. His brother had kind of built them up as this is really something interesting and really great. And, of course, we, as Sufis, we were quite skeptical. So we decided before we went that we were going to split up and harass these people (laughs) and see what they were really made of. And we went to the meeting, and I, you know, now thinking back on it, even not too long after, I felt somewhat ashamed of what I'd done because there was a young lady who, obviously had not given many talks before she maybe this was her first and she seemed rather nervous but she was gamely going along and but we had made this plan so we'd let her get wound up for about 10 minutes and then one of us would yell out how do you know that and of course everything would come to a screeching halt and she would try to explain uh, something or whatever to our ridiculous outbursts, and then we'd let her get wound up again for a few minutes, and then the other one from the other side of the room would yell out something like, prove it! Of course, our purpose was, you know, one of the Sufi sayings was, if you want to know what kind of person you're, you're dealing with, you have to scratch them a little bit, see what's under the surface. We were playing our role as finding the true nature of these people scratching them a little bit. So sure enough, she finally, I think, had had enough, and they wrapped up the meeting, and my friend and I joined each other again, uh, kind of in one corner, and I said, now watch, they're going to send their uh, their little Gestapo over here to kick us out or to suppress us in some way. Sure enough, about six or seven strapping young men were walking toward us. I said, okay, we have to fight. Let's just go back to back, we're ready, you know, (laughs) to fight our way out of there. Instead, they came up and they said, you know, that was an interesting comment that you made about such and such and so on. And we sat there with our mouths hanging open. We couldn't believe this. They actually took our ridiculous outburst seriously. We engaged them in conversation and stuff. And I remember we were driving home and my friend turns to me and says, what do you think? And I said, well, they're either the nicest people I've ever met, or they're the stupidest. Because <laughs> they didn't get, you know, that we were trying to trying to insult them or whatever. So I think they got it now. I, I kind of understand that. So, um, I think then after that was we, we, we actually started to listen. We were very attracted to the gatherings. Uh, there was a lot of love there. There was a lot of spirit there. And what they were talking about was very fascinating, especially when they read from the Baha'i writings. Eventually, I had decided that I would go to this 
meeting or these meetings forever, but that I would never join because that's when the trouble starts, you know, when you join something. That's what I decided. And then a few meetings after I decided that, I met this elder uh, Persian gentleman, and he was very interested in Sufism, and, and so he wanted to talk about Sufism. And, of course, I was very interested in talking about that, and so we had a wonderful conversation. And finally he said, you know, Baha'u'llah wrote two tablets to Sufis. And I said, oh, really? He says, yeah, I just happen to have them here. And so he gave me a book, a small book called The Seven Valleys and the Four Valleys. At first I said, oh, no, no, thank you. He says, no, you can borrow Just, you know, if you want to have a look, it might be interesting to you. So I took the book. The, the fireside was on a Friday night. So the following weekend I was over at my friend's house. Meanwhile, his older brother had, he had become a Baha'i and was reading as much as he could of the, the Baha'i literature. So I had my little book. So I pulled that out and I started reading The Seven Valleys and Four Valleys by Baha'u'llah. I had a very uh, strange experience. I felt as if all this were familiar, and in fact that, like when I was a child, and I had even had a specific experience that I had forgotten about when I was a child. When I was about six years old, I was in our backyard one night by myself, looking at a very beautiful, clear, starry sky, and I felt just this awe at the creation of God, and I spoke to the Creator, and I said, I just appreciate being part of all this, and I want to serve your people. What can I do? What should I do? In my own mind and, and in my heart, I got an answer. It came to me, you know, said, learn all you can and study hard, and then when it's time, I will call you. So I had forgotten all about this, but I remembered all this as I read this book, and I felt that this was the answer to that. This was that call. And so I was very frightened, of course, but I couldn't, I couldn't put it down. I couldn't, I couldn't stop reading it. So I read it all the way through to the end, and, and I wanted to fight it. I wanted to find some loophole. I wanted some way to get out of it because it frightened me terribly. But yet it was just so real. The following week, went back to the fireside, and I thought, you know, I've really got to avoid that elder Persian man who, who lent me this book. i really got to stay away from him. I, I managed to do it most of the night, and then finally it was my stomach that, that got the better of me. I was at the uh, refreshment table after the formal or more formal portion of the program, and I was getting some cookies on a little plate, and I felt a tap behind me on my shoulder, and sure enough, there was the elder gentleman, and I turned around, looked at him, met his eyes, and his eyes twinkled, and he says, how did you like the book? <laughs> and I knew pretty much I was done for. <laughs> then it was very interesting, because again, this some of this group of young gentlemen kind of came around, and at this home where this meeting was held, they also housed the Baha'i Library. So I was desperately grabbing at straws, looking for loopholes. So I, I really asked my questions that I had been asking my whole life. I asked that night, you know, in the hopes I would find something to put me off. But they were very wise. They, When I would ask these questions that I'd had for a lifetime, instead of just answering off the top of their head, they would consult together 
as a group, and they were kind of whispering, and then one of them would get a different, a certain book, and then they would consult and look, and then they would hand me a book open to a certain page, and they would say, read from this paragraph here to this. And I would do so, and there was no argument. I mean, it was very obvious to me that this was truth. So then I, well, what about this? So I'd come up with another question, and they'd do the same process again. They would consult and hand me a different book, and they'd say, okay, read here from the bottom of this page over to this page. And I'd read it, and there was no argument. That was very instructive. That was the night that I embraced the Baha'i cause. So what happened after you became a Baha'i? Oh, things immediately got very rough. (laughs) It's funny how that happens. Yeah. What I didn't mention, too, before that was I had gotten involved with drug use, mainly psychedelics and hallucinogens of various kinds. I had had a bad experience about two weeks prior to going to that first Baha'i meeting. And so that experience had scared me enough that I had just uh, abstained from the drugs. So at the time I encountered the Baha'i faith, I was not using drugs. And I didn't think anything of it when they said that the alcohol and drugs were forbidden. I was like, oh, good, you know. What happened, though, was I really felt a need. I had not, I, I did not feel I had finished with my Sufi studies. And I really felt the need to go back. By this time, they were in Oregon, near Eugene, Oregon, but actually up in the mountains, the Cascades. I went back, not as a, an official part of the, the Sufi school or anything, but just in the social milieu of the time, pretty quickly fell back into the drugs. And, of course, what I didn't know at the time was that, that I had an addictive personality, that I have an addictive personality, that I had a problem, that I was addicted. I went through, you know, about a, a good year, and of course I felt very ashamed that I had also violated this part of the Baha'i teachings. And so I pretty much stayed away from Baha'is as much as possible because of my guilt. Of course, none of that worked out very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fast forward pretty much a year of hell, and I won't go into all the gory details. But suffice it to say, my disease progressed, as diseases do. It got worse. I came to realize that, yes, this wasn't just a youthful fling or whatever, that I had a problem. And not to be surprised, there was addiction on both sides of my family. I never met either one of my, or I never met my maternal grandfather because um, he died of alcoholism. I hadn't put all this together, of course. I would go out to the, to the Sufi school for a while, and then I would come back to the East Coast. Just went through all kinds of situations and jobs. And one of the jobs I had was picking fruit. I was a migrant farm worker, basically, alongside whole families of people from Mexico. And the hardest work I ever did in my life and probably if you looked at a scale of how people consider jobs, that's probably the bottom in the United States. And then one day the, the foreman of that farm asked me not to return. I got fired, you know, and it was due to drug use. I don't know if you can go much lower. I was sleeping in a field because I couldn't stand the company of my fellows, nor they me. 
and I realized, okay, something has got to change. And I, I still had some of my Baha'i books, and I got them out, and I started reading. And then I found some Baha'is in Eugene, and they said, oh, you know, this is great. We're having a, a retreat. It was a camping type of situation. Along with another friend, I went to this, and they said, oh, you know, there's a special person that's coming here. Her name is Helen Bishop. She wrote the introduction to the English translation of the Kitabi Gan, and she knew the Guardian. The, now, who the, are uh, these folks, and what is the Kitabi Gan? The Kitabi Gan is a book of Baha'u'llah. Translated means a book of certitude. And it's his take on the history of religion, or what Baha'is call progressive revelation, whereby God reveals himself progressively to mankind as mankind is able to absorb it intellectually and spiritually and also able to develop the social institutions and the social laws to become more and more civilized, hopefully. And the guardian of the Baha'i faith was the um, great-grandson of the founder of the faith. His name was Shoghi Effendi. He was entrusted through the will and testament of Abdu'l-Baha, who Baha'u'llah appointed as his successor. He was entrusted with the uh, keeping the unity of the faith together and, and what's called the covenant of the Baha'i faith. So I show up to this thing, and we're helping people set up their tents and so forth. And one of the things that had bugged me, and this is not an excuse, but it's just a reality. Uh, you know, of course, as I've said, I had my own problems. There's no getting around that. But one of the things that had a little bit bugged me is I hadn't met any Baha'is prior to this who had the level, what I, what I call consciousness, that my Sufi teacher had. It's just sort of a subtext to this whole story. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting there after helping everybody put up their tents and so forth. I'm sitting at a picnic table, and I feel this presence over my shoulder, over my left shoulder, and I look back, and up the trail, here comes this elder lady with a little hat, kind of a old lady hat with a veil, and she's walking up the trail, and just this spiritual power was just emanating from her. And I thought to myself, I, I said, you know, oh, this must be the one they're talking about. And I turn back around. I'm, I'm sitting at this table by myself at this picnic table. She comes right over, sits down right across from me, and starts asking me questions about myself. And just incredible. She knew everything about the things I wanted to know about, about Sufism, this Helen Bishop. But she had the consciousness ten times my Sufi teacher. I mean, she was just, just it emanated from her. She was just so enlightened. I mean, even she said, well, what, what do you do? And I said, well, right now I've been picking fruit. And I expected, you know, her to kind of look down her nose at me, and instead she says, oh, that's wonderful work. You're out in the sunshine. You're, you're doing such a service to provide food for people and so forth. And I was just stunned. So I asked her, you know, all these questions I had and about things in the Baha'i writings and how did this relate to Sufism or didn't it? And she didn't hesitate, you know. She she answered, she knew what she was talking about, and I had to come up with some half-cocked theories about different things. And she said, oh, no, 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 that doesn't mean that at all. It means this, you know. It seemed like every free moment of the weekend I was able to spend with this lady, even though 
everybody there obviously wanted to spend time with her. Um, she somehow sensed what I needed. I would say that was my confirmation in the Baha'i faith. That was the beginning of where then I had the strength to recognize, first of all, I had to struggle against the, the addiction. Mm-hmm. But I was able to do that and eventually went back east, enrolled in college. I had a wonderful set of Baha'i youth friends. And at my community college in Northern Virginia, I knew there were 14 Baha'i youth on this campus of Northern Virginia Community College in Annandale. I had memorized every one of their schedules, so whenever I felt the desire for any uh, illicit substances, I knew where to find someone, and I'd go and talk with them and ask them to pray with me. And eventually was able to not only deal with the addiction, I won't say I was cured because I don't believe you're ever cured, but was able to have that sort of fade into the background and and able to have a, a life. During that time, I was working, going to community college, but I was very active Baha'i. Then I met my wife. We got married, and we went to Texas, where I went to the University of Texas. And I went there for one reason, and then it seemed like, no, that's not what I was supposed to do, and I ended up getting into the honors program at the University of Texas. Ended up having a triple major, only because... I was in this program, they let me design my own curriculum, and then they turned it into a triple major. It was English, Spanish, and Asian studies. What I really did is I just took classes that I liked and was interested in. So I took things like Persian mystical literature and translation. I took a Buddhism, Mahayana to Zen, with a disciple of Gandhi named Raja Rao, who taught half a year at Harvard and half a year at University of Texas. Incredible gentleman. He taught truly by the Socratic method. He would throw out a statement and then just be silent. And, of course, the students, it took some time for them to get used to it. It was funny to me because one of the first times he'd he'd throw out a statement like, from being comes becoming. And then he'd just be quiet. And he's standing up there at the podium, and, like, there's ten minutes of silence. He leans into the microphone and he says, take your time. (laughs) (laughs) which i just love some of the students got very angry and stormed out you know and got a class change and he's like oh that's good i loved it and i ended up taking multiple classes with him so i got the education I, i had always wanted i just had some fantastic teachers even took things i took astronomy for non science majors and had the head of the mcdonald observatory in west texas as our teacher and he helped us through just a great lecture style and using math and vision helped us conceive the inconceivability of the size of the universe, you know. And I took environmental biology with one of the gentlemen who helped develop the birth control pill and had these wonderful conversations with him. And So I felt very fortunate to be accepted in this honors program and get to do this and have these top people in their fields as an undergraduate. They didn't teach any other undergraduates, but they would teach people in this Plan 2 honors program. My bachelor's degree is in general and comparative studies, and everybody asked me, well, what are you going to do with that? And I said, well, I'm I'm qualified to generalize and compare things (laughs) one to another. But it was the best thing I ever did for myself because it was my dream come true. I had always wanted to just 
delve into all of these things that I was interested in, and I got to do that. So what did you do after college? Well, my wife had grown up in Japan. My last year of college, or just before my last year, the book uh, Shogun came out by James Clavell. I don't know how I got a hold of it, but I picked it up one afternoon. I didn't have a lot of schoolwork or something. I had some time, which was unusual. And I ended up literally staying up all night and finishing that book at just before dawn. I just became enamored with it and fascinated. In Austin, Texas, where the University of Texas is, outside of town there is a beautiful Japanese garden, which I'd heard of but had never visited. So I got in, in my car and went out there. It wasn't even open yet, but somebody had left the gate open. And I went in and went next to this beautiful little bamboo Zen fountain thing with you know water trickling down and prayed and watched the sun come up, and I felt really inspired that we were supposed to go to Japan. So my last year, I came in to sign up for my courses. I signed up for Japanese language, culture, Japanese religion, arts, Japanese literature and translation. And I remember the, the nice Texas lady who was a, uh, my advisor, Donette Moss, I remember her name. She says, Mike, do you know what you're doing? <laughs> and I said, I think so. She says, okay, I'll sign it then. So I did this whole left turn. That's how I ended up with the Asian uh, studies minor. I, I, you know, I just jumped in with both feet. We did end up going. Uh, I got a job at a small language school over there outside of Tokyo, and we ended up going over there. Part of our motive, a big part of it too, was be what are called Baha'i pioneers. A pioneer is a person who usually self-supporting. So not really like missionaries, you know, who are supported by a church or an organization. In the Baha'i faith, we try to arrange things so we can support ourselves, but go to another country or another locality, another territory, for the purpose of sharing the Baha'i teachings and the Baha'i message. So we did that. That was quite an experience. And, of course, my wife had wanted to return to Japan. She was there as a child from age 7 till 12. Her father was a liaison officer with the Japanese shipbuilding companies in Sasebo, Japan, on the west coast of Japan, small little place. So she had grown up with Japanese culture. And, of course, one of the byproducts I had of this was that I got to know my wife in a new way because she had always told me that culturally she was Japanese, even though... Biologically, she's Danish and Scottish. But I never really understood that till we went to this country, and then I realized, oh, here's a whole country of people like my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people I, have to, I had to go halfway around the world to really understand my wife. In understanding Japanese culture and coming to at least some understanding of it, I gained a greater insight into who my wife really was. Mm-hmm. And how long were you in Japan? Uh, we were there just for one year. And why is that? I was in the hospital. Mm. The last month we were there, I overworked. Again, uh, addictive personality kicked in, <laughs> this mm. time with work. Right. I didn't realize that that could be an addiction, too. I've, I've had a lot of learning to do in my life. and <laughs> My grandmother used to say, you know, there's two ways to learn things you can 
learn by wisdom, which is by learning from the mistakes of others, or you can learn through hard experience. And it seemed like too many times I've had to learn the second way. Mm. And my wife was pregnant with our daughter. After I got out of the hospital, it seemed like the best thing that we should come back to the Mm -hmm. States. First, we came back to Northern Virginia, and we stayed with my parents. I tried to get a job, but it was 1979, and it was a big recession. And even though I had all these contacts and knew all these people in that area, I couldn't buy a job. I probably filled out more than 100 applications. I had I don't know how many interviews and sent out how many resumes and contacted everybody I knew, and it just there was just nothing happening. So I had these temporary jobs just making ends meet. I worked at a golf course, and then I worked as a security guard for a bank and worked finally guarding German Air Force airplanes at Dulles International Airport in the middle of winter. I felt like Dr. Shivago, my mustache would be ice-covered and frozen after a whole night out on the tarmac with the cold January wind blowing across and the ice and everything. We had dinner with my aunt and uncle who lived in Maryland at that time, and they were asking, you know, well, have you tried this? Have you tried this? And finally my aunt said, well, maybe you're just not supposed to be here. And I said, well, where am I supposed to be? I mean, and they said, well, we have a proposition for you. And I guess what had happened, my uncle's um, father had passed away down in Florida. They had gone down, gotten his mom, but they hadn't been able to do anything with the house. So he says, look, you know, we just left this house the way it was. There's still food in the refrigerator. It's probably rotten. The place needs to be cleaned up, And but we don't have time to go down. We're both working. We don't have time to go down there and do this. If you'll go down and clean this place up and get it ready so we can sell it, you can live there rent-free for a year. I'm like, well, where is it? I said, well, it's a block from the beach <laughs> in uh, Gulfport, Florida, near St. Petersburg in the Tampa Bay area. I'm like, boy, that sounds like a deal to me. So we had a new little baby. And we packed up everything in our old Volvo and and headed to Florida. It was the best thing we ever did. (laughs) I was so glad to be out of the cold, for one thing. Within a week, I had a a job. It wasn't great. I was selling uh, men's suits, but it was a job. And then within a month, I was promoted to assistant manager, and, and, you know, life went on. Yeah. Now, I understand that at some point in your life you lived on a reservation? Yeah, that's correct. About seven years ago, we lived for six years on the Navajo Reservation. We went out there in 95 from Florida and lived from 95 through 2001. And what did you do there? I was a teacher. I actually... In the first place we lived, a little community called Rock Point, I helped set up their gifted and talented program for their district, then did also teach some in that program. And then at another school uh, where we transferred to, I taught English. And my wife was a librarian for the first school and also for the second school. And again, we were there partially because of our own interest and partially as Baha'i pioneers. Mm-hmm. So what was the Native Americans' take on the Baha'i faith? You know, the Baha'i faith is somewhat of an Eastern religion. And I've I've always thought of the Native spiritual context being very nature-oriented. So I'm just curious, how receptive was the 
Native American population to the Baha'i faith? I didn't tell you this part, but, you know, my, my grandmother, the one who raised me, eventually became a Baha'i. Mm. And I think it would be kind of like the way she was. All her life, she told me, from the time she was a little girl, she would go past a church, or she would not go past any church or any religious building, but that she would go to the door and open the door and peek inside, or she said she was looking for a certain spirit. And up until the time when I got married, she never joined a a religion or a church or anything. And because she said she'd never found that spirit she was looking for. At my wife and my wedding, which, of course, we had a Baha'i wedding, she told us that she had felt that spirit and she wanted to join and embrace the faith of Baha'u'llah. And she did, and she was quite active in it. So I think a lot of Native people are that way in that they are looking for a certain spirit. And if the people that they come into contact with embody that spirit, then they will listen to the teachings. They will listen and see if those things make sense. But I think they're looking first for the spirit. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what I encounter, too, with a lot of the Native people. Mm-hmm. When we first went to Rock Point, the first community we lived in, we prayed every day. And one of the things we prayed for was to be guided as to how to introduce these people to what our faith was. And it was so interesting because my wife, my daughter, and myself, independently, we had all received the same guidance in our prayers and meditations, and that guidance was, don't tell them your religion yet. Let them get to know you. We later saw the wisdom of this because as we got to know the people in this community, this was a community that was very greatly divided by religion. Families were divided because they were either one of three or four choices of of religion that were available in that area that had missionaries sent. Or they were traditional, Navajo traditional religion, or the uh, Native American church, or one of the Christian denominations. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting because none of us are, are very shy, usually, about mentioning our faith or where our guidance or our values come from, but we were all guided for about six months, and it was hilarious because any time the subject of religion would come up, the people, whether they were students, whether they were adults, they would really try to get us to, well, they say, well, what religion are you, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And then it was, at some point around six months, it was like, okay, now we can tell them, because they couldn't hate us for our religion because they knew us too well. And they knew us as people, and they knew the kind of spirit that we had. It's a different kind of thing. Where are you living now, Mike? Uh, We're living in Tucson, Arizona. And what are you doing these days? Still teaching. (laughs) (laughs) And do you have any plans for the future? I have two unfinished novels that I'd like to finish. One is a sort of a mystery novel set in Japan working title, Kamikaze Killers. The other one is, I guess you'd call literary or mainstream type novel set in Indian country. I took a lot of creative writing when I was in in college, too, and ever since I've tried to steal and eke out time to to write, which is hard to do when you're raising a family and making a living and so forth. That's probably my biggest dream. I'd like to get one or more novels published and 
have it be popular enough that they'd want to make a Hollywood movie and <laughs> and and let me be on the set for five minutes as they start up and, and meet whoever the stars are, and then they hate to have the writers around. I know they'd kick me off, but that would probably be a big thrill. Yes. I love movies, too, and that was one of the things I was involved with when I was working with the Gifted Kids on the reservation is they made a movie that was shown at the Smithsonian, which I coached them in writing the script for. Is that posted anywhere by any chance? No, I have a copy of it on a VHS cassette. <laughs> at least not that I know of. The name of it is Nanaba. Yeah. If you can find it, yeah. N-A-N-I-B-A-A. Mm-hmm. It's a Navajo word that means a female warrior. I think a lot of my goals I've, I've already reached, but you know, I still have more. People always talk about retirement. I can't imagine anything more boring. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, hear I, don't, I don't understand that at all. Yeah. I have there are so many things I I, I still want to do. Yeah. So. I can see stop working but not retiring. <laughs> exactly. There you go. Well, we've run out of time, Mike. Thank you so much for telling me your story and good luck with your endeavors in the future. Well, thank you, uh, Warren. It's it's been my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Michael Lindsay, a Baha'i now living in Tucson, Arizona, who is a teacher and an aspiring author. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.